0: Welcome to the Recent Speeches Podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, featuring inspiring new devotionals and forums given each week on BYU campus. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts, or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. Thank you. Greetings. Greetings. John and I are happy to be here with you on this Halloween forum.
1: We are especially grateful to share the stand with my former student, Justin Cullings. Thank you, Justin, for that generous introduction and for these Lays. What a surprise.
0: We were asked to speak on the mission of BYU, so this may feel more like a devotional than a forum.
1: We have also tried to connect our talk to Halloween but that's not been easy to find an uplifting Halloween theme. (laughs) Well,
0: actually, Halloween did begin as a religious festival, All Hallows' Eve. In fact, in the traditional Christian calendar, Halloween is followed by All Saints' Day on November 1st and All Souls' Day on November 2nd. And the whole season is called All Hallows' Tide. The larger meaning of these holidays is that this is a time to remember the dead which actually does connect to our topic, fulfilling the dream of BYU. So let's talk about it.
1: Okay, first, as I've often said, BYU is built on the dreams and hopes of its founders, more than most universities. In fact, to continue the Halloween theme, you might say that we are haunted by their dreams. (laughs) We hope that through this Halloween forum, you will feel the presence of those who have dreamed the dream of BYU many of whom have passed away. They had a vision of what this university would become. You inhabit their hopes and dreams. They are now yours to fulfill. And that's what we want to talk about today.
0: Also, while we don't celebrate All Hallows Tide in the church, it's a good time to remember our own Halloween revelation on the dead, Doctrine and Covenants, section 138, and the beautiful song in our hymnal, For All the Saints, which was originally written for All Saints' Day. This revelation and this hymn provide two additional uplifting connections to these holidays.
1: First, let's talk about that Halloween revelation. It's fascinating that President Joseph F. Smith's Vision of the Dead, D&C 138, was unanimously accepted by the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve in 1918 on October 31st, Halloween. So, in a way, it's a Halloween vision. Not only was it ratified on Halloween, it dramatically clarifies Halloween themes, like the true nature of the realm of the dead and of our relationship to them.
0: So John and I have taken to reading Doctrine and Covenants section 138 for Halloween and going to the temple to serve and honor the dead in the Lord's way. And we recommend that you do so as
1: well. So here's a picture of a faculty member in Hawaii who heard me make this same point and then illustrated it to her class by dressing up as a ghost with these signs on her front and her back. I am your ancestor. Did you do my temple work?
0: We also like to sing For All the Saints, so I'm really glad we sang that today to begin. And this gorgeous music by Rafe Vaughan Williams is considered among the finest of the 20th century hymn tunes, and the lyrics are also really inspiring. We love both the tune and the text.
1: We really do. As Susan said, the text was written originally for All Saints Day, which is tomorrow in the traditional Christian calendar. We want to apply a line from the hymn's second verse in the LDS hymnal. "O oh, may thy soldiers, faithful, true, and bold, fight as the saints who nobly fought of old and win with them the victor's crown of gold, alleluia, alleluia. Brothers and sisters, we challenge you, our beloved BYU community, to be faithful, true, and bold in pursuing the mission of BYU. For if BYU is to realize its full potential and become the BYU of Prophecy, as President Reese has invited us to become in his stirring inaugural address, we must be faithful, true, and bold in fulfilling the dream of BYU. So, now having made these holiday connections, Susan and I will talk about The Dream of BYU itself, including our more than 50 years' personal experience with it, and insights that we've gained from compiling and studying mission-centric talks for a recently published uh, volume entitled Envisioning BYU.
0: We are deeply invested in the Dream of BYU. It has blessed us as well as many members of our family. Currently it's blessing six of our grandchildren. Here is a photo of our BYU students as little ones and now with our missionary included as current students. We want to address our remarks today especially to our grandchildren, some of whom are beginning freshmen all the way up to those who will soon graduate from BYU to go forth to serve.
1: We hope that our comments will help you grandchildren and everyone else who watches or reads this forum to understand BYU's mission. We also encourage you to read and study the talks in Envisioning BYU. Now Susan will tell you about how she came to embrace, first, this dream of BYU.
0: So as a young girl and a teenager, I always dreamed of coming to BYU. When I started in the late summer honors program three weeks before the regular semester began, I felt at every turn that this was the place for me. It was rigorous academically, as the university should be, and also everything—the classes, the coursework, the professors, the friendships, the extracurricular activities—it was all bathed in the light of the gospel, and I really felt the Spirit. One of the early devotionals I attended really articulated my feelings well. It was given by Bruce C. Hafen, who was serving as the assistant to the president of the university. In his talk, he reflected on how important education was for our early leaders, Joseph Smith and Brigham Young. Joseph founded the School of the Prophets and other schools, and Brigham espoused learning everything that the children of men know and declared that our religion circumscribes all the wisdom in the world. They both sought to educate the saints academically, culturally, and spiritually. In that devotional, Elder Hafen told a handcart pioneer story of Sister Marjorie Hinckley's grandmother, whose refined family left southern England when they converted to the Church to come to Zion. This woman sacrificed and suffered so much on that trek, losing three siblings and her mother to death on their journey. This young girl, Polly, wrote about their condition when they finally entered the Salt Lake Valley. She said, Early the next morning, Brigham Young came. When he saw our condition, our feet frozen, our mother dead, tears rolled down his cheeks. The doctor amputated my toes while the sisters were dressing mother for her grave. Then they carried us in to see our mother for the last time. Oh, how did we stand it? I have thought often of my mother's words before we left England— Polly, I want to go to Zion while my children are small so they can be raised in the gospel of Christ, for I know this is the true Church. This family, as well as many other families, came from cultured cities of Europe. They welcomed a religion that prioritized education and schools along with spiritual knowledge. In Brother Hafen's talk, he then imagines a fictional evening with pioneers on the plains, they were not rough frontiersmen, but cultured and refined saints who longed for opportunities to learn in the light of the gospel. He said, Can you imagine with me that perhaps on one of those nights, as some of the pioneers came across the prairies, one or two of the older youngsters who liked books, or even Brigham himself who liked books, might have sat beneath the stars and said to one another, Do you think that one day there might be a great university in Zion, a great school with all the books and laboratories and teachers where the saints might come from all around the world to learn together? Just think, all those books and the Spirit too. Then Brother Hafen continues, An impossible dream? They might have thought so, but the dream has come true. Let us not forget about the pollies or the dream. We must take it as seriously as they did. Just think, all those books and the Spirit, too. That phrase, all those books and the Spirit, too, has lingered with me all these years. I recall it often when I participate in this great university that bears the name of its founder, Brigham Young. Here, we have the great privilege for an education for our whole souls.
1: Thank you for sharing that, Susan. Ever since you told me about Bruce Hafen's devotional many years ago, I've been touched by that phrase, all those books and the spirit too. It's become kind of a watchword for us. I hope that BYU always qualifies to be the school that the early saints envisioned and sacrificed for. Recently, in the collection of talks called uh, Envisioning BYU, I try to give voice to some of the hopes and dreams of those who built BYU. As one would expect, it includes the famous founding charge from Brigham Young to Carl G. Mazur. He said, Brother Mazur, I want you to remember that you ought not to teach even the alphabet or the multiplication tables without the Spirit of God. You grandchildren— should know this founding charge. I like to think of Brigham Young's charge to teach all all subjects with the Spirit of God as BYU's prime directive, borrowing a phrase from Star Trek,
0: In speaking to the university later, (laughs) President Spencer W. Kimball rephrased this charge. He said he expected that every teacher in this institution would keep his subject matter bathed in the light and color of the restored gospel. Isn't that beautiful?
1: It is. I love both those injunctions. They are core. BYU, however, doesn't really begin with Brigham Young's famous charge to Brother Mazur. Nor does envisioning BYU begin with these. BYU has its origin in scriptural injunctions, such as Jesus' command to love God with all of our minds, and Joseph Smith's revelation, its revelations, especially DNC eighty eight, known as the Olive Leaf, which contains the oft quoted counsel to seek learning even by study and also by faith. President Dallin H. Oaks called the Olive Leaf quote, the first and greatest revelation of this dispensation on the subject of of education, BYU's basic constitution. And this
0: constitutional revelation is rich in implication for BYU. So in our talk today, we will focus on five principles from that revelation. One, cease to be unclean. Two, teach one another. Three, learn of things both in heaven and the earth. Four, learn by study and by faith. And five, live in the bonds of love and covenant. So from the beginning, Latter-day Saints believed worthiness to be essential to education. In D&C 88.124, we find the clear injunction to cease to be unclean. This mandate runs all through the olive leaf, and there is a repeated emphasis for learners in the School of the Prophets to be clean and worthy qualify for the Spirit. Clearly, the expectations of integrity, moral purity, and worthiness did not begin with our current BYU honor code. Indeed, like the temple, those who were received into the school were to be clean from the blood of this generation. They were received through the ordinance of the washing of feet.
1: Susan, you and I have been touched for a long time by a panel in the exhibit Education in Zion in the Joseph F. Smith building, which we encourage all of you kids to visit. The panel shows a wash basin, some soap, and some clean clothing. It explains that early in the morning, students who entered the school would wash themselves (coughs) and put on clean clothing. Zebedee, Zebedee Coltrane, an early church leader and student in the school, said that they would come together at about sunrise fasting, and partook of the sacrament, and washed, And we washed ourselves and put on clean linen. They wanted to be clean outwardly and inwardly. This is the beginning
0: <laughs> of the true code of honor. One of my freshman impressions was that my honor's colleagues were not just bright students, but also honorable people who could be trusted to keep the code of cleanliness and honor to which they had agreed.
1: That's right. They were people of integrity. Whether they agreed with each rule that they had committed to abide by, they they decided to keep them. So they kept them. That's what integrity means. Being whole. It's moral wholeness. Like Dr. Seuss's Horton the elephant, they meant what they said, and they said what they meant. Now, a second principle in the olive leaf, in addition to the injunction to be clean, is that students were to teach one another. In fact, student and teacher at times exchanged roles that all may be edified of all. The idea of students teaching and learning from each other goes back to the earliest days of the Brigham Young Academy. It's in our institutional DNA. Indeed, this principle was implemented through what Carl G. Mazur called the monitorial system, where students took responsibility to teach and assist other students. So, grandkids, I hope that you will have interactive teaching and learning opportunities here. I strongly encourage you to choose friends and roommates from whom you can learn. I was blessed to learn together with some remarkable friends and roommates at BYU. One of them was an honors aide with me. We would talk about ideas late into the night. Not only did we teach and edify one another, we also sought out-of-classroom experiences to learn from our professors. My roommates and I would sometimes invite favorite professors over to our house for a pancake breakfast and then invite them to tell us about their research. I remember doing this with Frank Fox, who was then a young history professor with a specialty in the American Revolution and the founding. That was great fun. We thought we were paying Professor Fox in pancakes for doing this. Gratefully, he didn't complain about our doughy offerings. (laughs) (coughs) We also organized a personalized reading class for our Honors General Education. One roommate, a history major, led discussions on the Federalist Papers. Another who spoke Danish on Kierkegaard's training in Christianity. I chose to lead a discussion on a book called I Thou by Martin Buber, which I had read a snippet of in philosophy class and was, and was intrigued by. I still remember the books we taught each other, maybe better than the books we read I read for normal classes. My roommates and I taught one another in and out of class. So should you kids. Don't be what a Harvard professor called a bench-bound learner or listener.
0: That's great. A third principle in Doctrine and Covenants 88 is that we are to learn broadly of things both in heaven and in the earth and under the earth, things which have been, things which are, and which must shortly come to pass. Why? That you may be prepared in all things. This sounds a lot like a general education curriculum to me. A broad education is a crucial part of the olive leaf. So children, in light of the revealed importance of general education, I want to tell you a funny family story that illustrates how passionate Grandpa John is about general education. It happened when he was driving a daughter to Rick's. She casually mentioned that she wanted to get her GE's out of the way. John just about went through the roof of the car. He slammed on the brakes and said, what do you mean get GE out of the way? You shouldn't, just go through co- you shouldn't just go through college. College needs to go through you. And then he went on to say that too often students think of GE as something someone else requires them to do, like soldiers in World War II who were told to pass down a line of people, giving them medical shots. They didn't know why. The shots were just something to be endured, something someone else said was good for them. And that's how people often experience general education as something imposed by others, something to get out of the way.
1: Yeah, that, that? I, I do, and the story is a bit embarrassing. My, my uh, response may have been a little over the top, but actually, I still, still feel the same way about that principle. And it, in fact, it applies not just to education, but to exaltation. Too often we describe our goal as going through the temple or making it to the celestial kingdom rather than have the temple go through us or becoming celestial people like God. The Lord wants us to become a good person, not just to do good things. He wants us to love godliness, not just to grit our teeth and obey. He won't inflict a celestial life on those who don't love celestial things. The point is to become celestial people, not just to make it to the celestial kingdom. As President Nelson said, we need to think celestial. Indeed, we need to become celestial. Likewise for education. Too many people conflate college with credentialing. You are not here just to get a credential, as important as that is. The Lord endorsed a stunningly broad education. Why? So that you may be prepared in all things when I shall send you. You are here to become educated so you can go forth and serve.
0: Okay, I think you can still feel John's passion. So I want you him to tell you now how he became so invested in general education at BYU.
1: Okay. After my mission, I spent a lot of time thinking about what makes an educated person. For a couple of years as an honors aide at BYU, I helped implement an experimental GE program in which students were asked to devise their own GE requirements. They had to write letters to the honors dean justifying categories and courses that they wanted to take based on what they thought an educated person should know. I read these justifications every day and ghost-drafted possible responses from the deans. This meant I had to think long and hard about the what and why of education, especially from a BYU or gospel perspective.
0: And you didn't know it at the time, but I think the Lord was preparing you for another later assignment that would help define the dream of BYU. When you were asked to join the administration in the early 1990s, the academic vice president Todd Bridge and the provost Bruce Hafen assigned you to draft a statement about what a BYU education should do for students.
1: At first I thought, why? We already have a beautiful mission statement by President Jeffrey L. Holland. He had drafted that a few years before. Wasn't that enough? No, I was told. We need a statement focused on student outcomes, like that all students should learn to write. This triggered memories of drafting those GE letters, and it got me started. I also had a deep impression at the time, almost a revelation, that I should connect what students should learn at BYU to Brigham Young's educational vision. After all, the university bore his name, so I read Hugh Nibley's essays describing Brigham Young's views on education. With all this in mind, I set about drafting what became the aims of a BYU education. As you study the aims, kids, note that each aim begins with a quote from Brigham Young. This was deliberate.
0: Okay, so here they are, and I hope you know them. I hope you're familiar with the four aims. The first is spiritually strengthening, which ties to Brigham Young's original charge to Carl G. Mazur to teach nothing here without the Spirit of God. The next is intellectually enlarging which was described by Brigham Young when he said every accomplishment in mathematics, music, and in all science and art belong to the saints. And then the third aim is character building. Brigham Young espoused a firm, unchangeable course of righteousness in integrity, sportsmanship, honesty, fairness, and all moral virtues. And the final aim of a BYU education is lifelong learning and service. Our founder said, when shall we cease to learn? I will give you my opinion about it. Never, never. And about service, he added, our education should make us of greater service to the whole human family.
1: We didn't know it at the time that I drafted the aims that a paradigm shift was coming that would sweep across higher education. It was a shift that's been described as a shift from a teaching paradigm, which looks at inputs like class sizes and faculty credentials, to a learning paradigm, which looks at student outcomes. Soon, all institutions of higher education would be required to articulate what they expected their students to learn. And I think the
0: aims really helped BYU meet the challenge of that new era, and they've held up very well over the years. We encourage you to study the mission statement and the aims, so that these ideals are embedded in your souls now as you study here and also later when you leave this hallowed place.
1: Recently, uh, when Elder D. Todd Christofferson spoke at the university about the aims, he recognized that they point outward to lifelong learning and service. He said, a BYU education should lead to the end of shared service in the cause of Christ. This outward orientation is also deliberate. Our prophet, President Russell M. Nelson, has taught us this by word and example. Just think how much he learned after his initial degree. He wasn't in it just for credentialing. And of how he has used his education to bless others. He said... Education is the difference between wishing you could help other, other people and being able to help them. We educate our minds so that one day we can render service of worth to somebody else. Learning is not an end unto itself, but a means to bless God's children. And
0: he's such a beautiful
1: example. Now let's turn briefly
0: to a fourth educational principle from the olive leaf, to learn by study and by faith. This combination is crucial at BYU and to education for Latter-day Saints generally. The Lord expects us to learn with both our intellect and our spirit. I love the way President Kimball described this when he addressed the university at the beginning of its second century. He said that we should be bilingual. You must speak with authority and excellence in the language of scholarship, and you must also be literate in the language of spiritual things. I hope that you kids cultivate the bilingual education that you can receive here of the whole soul. I know what it is to have to study really hard to learn. And I also know what it is to have the spirit enlighten my mind. One of my favorite visual reminders of this principle is found in the sign on the steps of the library, which quotes the scripture to seek learning by study and also by faith.
1: When I see that sign, I also note the worn stairs which symbolize for me the pursuit of learning by study. I also think of the countless prayers that have ascended to heaven from the library and from classrooms of uh, the classrooms of BYU as students also seek to learn by faith.
0: We walked through those stairs and we said those prayers hundreds and hundreds of times.
1: We've worn the grooves in those prayers in those in those stairs rather. As have you I hope. This always reminds me of what happens uh, to the university on, cam- on Sundays. Uh, as a student and later as a campus bishop, I attended wards where the sacrament was laid out between Bunsen burners. And I partook of, a, of, I, I partook of the sacrament in a room that had a periodic table on the wall. The sacrament amid Bunsen burners and the periodic table. What an image of joining study and faith! Every Sunday, when the campus turns to a church, it's evident that we belong to an institution deeply committed to developing bilingual disciples who know how to learn by study and also by faith.
0: Now, before we leave our discussion of Section 88, let's talk about a beautiful fifth principle of LDS education, namely that we are to interact in the bonds of love and covenant, I love this conclusion, which describes a formal salutation by the teacher or president of the School of the Prophets, who was Joseph Smith, to his students. He greeted them in the bonds of love and covenant with these words. Art thou a brother or brethren? I salute you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, in token or remembrance of the everlasting covenant, in which covenant I receive you to fellowship in a determination that is fixed, immovable, and unchangeable, to be your friend and brother through the grace of God in the bonds of love, to walk in all the commandments of God, blameless in thanksgiving forever and ever.
1: Amen. That stirs me to the very soul. Can you imagine, Susan, the prophet greeting you in the name of Christ and in a covenantal fellowship as you entered the school? We don't greet students now this way at BYU. But we should retain the spirit of this salutation in our hearts. I often repeated it to myself as I prepared to interact with my students, and I encourage all faculty and staff to do the same. Like the School of the Prophets, this community should be bound together in the bonds of love and covenant. It should be a place where we strive to walk in the commandments of God, blameless and in thanksgiving. This should be a place of covenant belonging.
0: And likewise, Joseph says that the school of the prophets was to be a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit, like BYU and the temple. Interestingly, it is nearly impossible to tell if the Lord is talking about school or temple in Doctrine and Covenants 88 when He commands the saints to build a house of prayer, fasting, learning, glory, and order, a house of God. I think it's meant to apply
1: to both. I do too. That's, that's why I included temple prayers that reference BYU in Envisioning BYU. I was hoping you'd see the connection between school and temple. So kids, I hope you'll come to see and feel that at BYU and that you will participate in temple ordinances often as an important part of your education. In the DNC, the Lord indicates that a church school was to be held in the upper room of the temple in Kirtland. Nowadays, every church school is located beside a temple. I love the beautiful twin murals in the exhibit Education in Zion. They visually uh, pair the first LDS temple with with BYU, and they depict both structures as enveloped in heaven's light. There is and ought to be an, a spiritual connection for Latter-day Saints between school and temple. After all, both are called in the scriptures houses of learning. The church should strive to be. The church should strive to be. Church schools, rather, should strive to be worthy of their temple neighborhoods. I often said that at BYU-Hawaii, and I'd say it here, too. Before we leave these accounts of the early builders of BYU, Susan will tell about a vision recorded by Brigham Young's daughter, Zina P. Williams Card. It's a vision about BYU that has touched us both very deeply.
0: So The early years of the Brigham Young Academy were fraught with challenges, including financial hardships and also the fact that the prophet who had the vision of this place had recently passed away. Brigham Young's daughter Zina, an early graduate of Brigham Young Academy, who later became a faculty member and the first dean of women, was very anxious about the success of the Academy. She traveled to Salt Lake to pour out her school worries to President John Taylor. He lovingly took her into his private library and said, My dear child, I have something of importance to tell you that I know will make you happy. I have been visited by your father. He came to me in the silence of the night, clothed in brightness and with a face beaming with love and confidence, and told me that the school being taught by Brother Maser was accepted in the heavens and was part of a great plan of life and salvation—that church schools should be fostered for the good of Zion's children, for they would need the support and of this knowledge and testimony of the gospel, and there was a bright future in store for the preparing the children of the covenant for future usefulness in the kingdom of God, and that Christ himself was directing and had a care over this school." Each time I hear this beautiful story, it thrills my heart. Think of it. Jesus Christ Himself has a care over this school. And why? Because it is a place where the children of the covenant are being prepared for future usefulness in the kingdom of God. I wish that every student and all others who walk this campus would keep the words, Christ Himself has a care for this school, running over and over through their minds. I think it would inspire gratitude for the opportunity to study in a place that is cared for by Christ Himself and would prompt them to ask themselves what is my role and responsibility in helping this school reach its destiny? And what can I do to live up to the privilege of being here? How can I fulfill the dream of BYU?
1: I love that vision that Zaina recounts. What a thrill to learn that Christ had a care over this school. In the Second Century Address, which I hope all you kids will read, President Kimball said that BYU has a rendezvous with history. He then shared a remarkable statement by a Christian president of the United Nations named Charles H. Malik, who said, I hope one day a great university will arise somewhere to which Christ will return in his full power and glory, a university which will, in the promotion of scientific, intellectual, and artistic excellence, surpass by far even the best secular universities of the present, but which will at the same time enable Christ to bless it and act and feel perfectly at home in it. An impossible dream? You might think so. President Henry B. Irene said, however, that President Kimball went on to say, surely BYU can help respond to that call to be a university where Christ can feel at home. President Irene then explains that Christ will feel at home at BYU only if we are consecrated. We know that something, he goes on to say, we know something of what a place must be like for the glorified Savior to feel perfectly at home. Those who labor there will have long before consecrated it to him and to his kingdom. He will be at home, perfectly at home, because they will not only have said the words, this is the Lord's university, they will have served and lived to make it so. They will have made it a consecrated place and offered it to him. This is our dream to fulfill. Prophets and university leaders have helped keep the dream alive for us. They have invited us, just as Justin Collins did in his recent inspiring devotional, to seek holiness, seek learning, seek revelation, seek the best gifts, seek Christ-like exemplars, and above all, seek this Jesus of whom the uh, prophets and apostles have written. It is he who has a care over this school.
0: We hope that you now feel more than ever surrounded by the spirits of those who have built BYU. Great, noble men and women have built this place. Sometimes they were paid in cabbages and carrots, but they were consecrated. They believed in BYU. They believed that Christ Himself has a care over this place. May you be faithful, true, and bold to their dream of BYU, like all those saints who nobly fought of old.
1: As you leave, you will hear the carillon bells. The carillon was dedicated by President Kimball at the end of his prophetic second-century address. Every time I hear the bells, I remember what he said when he dedicated them. He said, Just as these bells will lift the hearts of the hearers, let the morality of the graduates of this university provide the music of hope for the inhabitants of this planet. Brothers and sisters, this is our dream to fulfill— to become the music of of hope for an increasingly discordant world. The bells call you and me to be faithful, true, and bold as we pursue the dream of BYU. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
0: You've been listening to the Recent Speeches podcast presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts, including classic speeches taken from our vast audio library as well as other BYU Speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity, by study and by faith. Come follow me, the Prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on Podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.